Hello and welcome to Snapshots from Europe Travelogue. My name is Brian Unger and today we are going to go to Berlin. Now many of the great cities of the world bring with them a certain persona. Rome is nicknamed the Eternal City because of its connection to the glories of the Roman Empire. Paris is a city of light. That's a name it acquired when it was a center of education and ideas during the Age of Enlightenment. Some call Paris the city of love. New York is the Big Apple. Las Vegas is Sin City. For our generation, we grew up with Berlin being a symbol of the Cold War, where East meets West. I imagine many of you might remember quite clearly watching television footage of Germans dancing on top of the Berlin Wall in 1989, something that seemed surreal. I personally own a piece of the Berlin Wall. I'm not sure if it's legit. It looks like any other random piece of concrete, but it does come in a nice box. Now, if we, if we look back at the 20th century, you got to ask yourself, is there any city in the world that has had as dramatic a roller coaster ride through history as Berlin? I want to take you on that ride through the 20th century. Along the way, I'd like to highlight some of the landmarks you'll be seeing when you visit Berlin. Many of these landmarks can be viewed on my Instagram account, Snapshots Travelogue, which is a companion to this podcast. So when you are finished listening, log on and have a look at these photos to get the full Berlin experience. I'll wrap up this episode with a few of my personal highlights you might want to visit when you travel to Berlin. So with that, let's dive in and get the backstory on the absolutely compelling city of Berlin. Well, let's go back to the year 1900. At the turn of the century, Berlin was on top of the world. It was a large and enormously beautiful city, covering more than 340 square miles with forest-rimmed lakes and the Spree River running through its center. It was also one of the most sophisticated urbane cities in Europe. It has more outdoor statues and monuments than Rome, and if you can believe it, they have more bridges than Venice. When Germany became unified as a country in 1871, Berlin was designated as the capital city, and the enormous Neobaroque Reichstag was commissioned, and that was to serve as the German parliament. But the crown jewel of Berlin is the iconic Brandenburg Gate, with its Doric columns and temple pavilions. It's at the foot of one of Europe's most famous boulevards, Unter den Linden. But the you know, 20th century would be a rough road for Berlin. The city escaped damage during World War I, but along with the rest of the country, the city had experienced some pretty tough times after the war. The German Kaiser Wilhelm II abdicated, and a new government was formed, and the capital was temporarily moved to the city of Weimar in central Germany. The interwar period was difficult for Germany, as it was plagued with political unrest, hyperinflation, and the emergence of a little-known failed artist from Austria who had become leader of the Munich-based National Socialist German Workers' Party. You may have heard of it. We're talking about the Nazis. With his brilliant speaking ability, he hammered away at the German people with its, his message of hatred for the Weimar government, hatred for the Treaty of Versailles, hatred for communism, and hatred for Jews. Of course, I'm speaking about Adolf Hitler. Through some nefarious backroom negotiations, 
Hitler was appointed chancellor of Germany as part of a coalition government. So Hitler was now in Berlin. However, as chancellor, Hitler had limited powers and his goal was dictatorial control. There was a provision in the German constitution which allowed for a chancellor to assume dictatorial power in times of emergency. This was called the enabling law and it had to be approved by the German Reichstag. So all Hitler needed was an emergency. Well, less than a month after his appointment as chancellor, Hitler got the emergency he was looking for when the iconic neo-baroque German Reichstag burned down. This was blamed on the communists, although it almost certainly was started by the Nazis. This led to a vote by the German parliament on whether or not to pass the enabling law and give Hitler dictatorial powers. The vote was heavily influenced by the strong arm tactics of Hitler's brown shirts, and the vote went as you can expect. Hitler got the dictatorial power he sought, and Berlin is now a Nazi city. Well, Berlin was now firmly in Nazi control, and they were anxious to prove themselves to the world. And they got their chance when in 1936, Berlin was the host of the Olympic Games. It was a chance for the Nazis to demonstrate their superiority in organization and efficiency. They really wanted to outdo the 1932 Los Angeles Olympic Games, and it seems they succeeded. The Berlin Games would be the most expensive games in history up until that point. It was the first games to be televised. It was closed circuit television, not broadcast television, but impressive nevertheless. Radio broadcasts reached 41 different countries and the infrastructure was off the charts. A new 100,000 seat track and field stadium was built, which is still in use today. This is incidentally still the subject of some controversy. Is probably the only remaining Nazi structure that is remaining in Berlin, and it's certainly the largest. Should it be considered a monument to Nazism? I actually visited the stadium recently, and I asked our German tour guide that exact question. He hummed and he hawed, and he didn't really have an answer. But Germany was hoping to use the games to prove that the self-designated title of Aryans as being superior people would be proven to be true at the games. And the Germans did win the most medals by far. Almost a third of the overall medals were won by Germany. And uh, almost twice as many medals were won by the Germans as were won by the Americans. But the star of the games, best remembered athlete was Jesse Owens, the African-American who won four gold medals, which destroyed this whole theory of Aryan supremacy. On the first day of the competition, Hitler shook hands only with the German victors, and then he left the stadium. But the Olympic committee officials insisted that Hitler should greet every medalist or none at all. Hitler opted for the latter, and he skipped all further medal presentations. There was no way he was going to be photographed shaking the hand of a black man. Well, as we get to 1939, we're getting to the precipice of war, and that is when the Nazis launched World War II. Berlin was able to avoid damage in World War I, but that was not the case with Hitler's war. Berlin took an absolute pounding. 
When the Soviets reached Berlin, they unleashed their pent-up anger on the city. Thousands of tons of explosives were dropped in air attacks, leaving the center of the once beautiful city in almost complete ruin. Water mains were ruptured. The Soviets destroyed the telephone system. Subways were deliberately flooded and industrial plants were stripped bare. And once again, the Reichstag takes center stage with one of the most iconic photos of the war where Soviet soldiers are planting the hammer and sickle flag on the roof, reminiscent of the raising of the Stars and Stripes on Iwo Jima in the Pacific War. Well, now that the Soviet Red Army had advanced into the eastern part of Germany, they ended up just staying put as the Iron Curtain descended over Europe. But Berlin was divided with allied powers occupying the western half of the city. This wasn't gonna work for the Soviet dictator, Joseph Stalin, who was determined to push the Western powers out of Berlin. But how would he go about doing that? Well, at six o'clock AM on June 24th, 1948, the Red Army suddenly threw up a blockade around West Berlin, cutting off all road and rail lines and trying to starve the city into submission, much like a medieval army might besiege a fortress. The Western powers had three choices. They could have fought through the blockade. They could have let Stalin have Berlin. After all, he, you know, the Allies did get the rest of Germany. Or a third option, they could fly over the blockade. And that is what they chose to do. Day and night, food, coal, medical supplies flew with planes landing every three minutes on average. They brought in an average of eight thousand tons of supplies every day from food and coal to food for animals in the Berlin Zoo, paper for newspapers. They even flew in cars for the Berlin police. With every flight came the threat of Soviet military intervention. But the blockade underscored the need for a united defense against Soviet aggression. This is why NATO was formed. And finally, on May 12, 1949, the USSR ended the siege. The Berlin blockade was over. As we get into 1950s Berlin, the East German Minister of Ministry of State Security and the secret police known as the Stasi had maintained a huge network of 90,000 secret police and 175,000 paid informants watching everything that people said and did. In a population of 17 million, that worked out to one spy for every 64 people. They kept files on 4 million East Germans, about a quarter of the population. Now, at this time, there were no barriers separating East and West Berlin through the whole 1950s. So people could go from East to West as easily as crossing the street. So between 1945 and 1961, more than 3 million East Germans escaped to West Germany, most of them through Berlin. This was nearly a fifth of East Germany's population, and it was predominantly the young, dynamic, well-educated class. The temperature was rising over Berlin. As U.S. President John F. Kennedy and Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev met in Vienna to talk about this, it was very unfriendly and unsuccessful. This took place in June of 1961. Khrushchev demanded that Berlin should become neutral and he angrily talked of war if the USA did not pull out. Banging his hands on the conference table, Khrushchev said, I want peace, but if you want war, that is your problem. Kennedy ended the conference by saying, it's going to be a long winter. Khrushchev 
to an American diplomat said later that same month, if your troops try to force their way into Berlin, we will oppose you by force. War is bound to go thermonuclear. And though you and we may survive, all your European allies will be completely destroyed. Could it possibly be that Berlin would be the cause of an atomic war? As diplomatic tensions increased, more and more East Germans fled West. The East German economy was now in danger of collapse as professionals and workers left in droves and the numbers kept rising. In 1960, almost 200,000 escaped, including 688 doctors, almost 300 dentists, and over 2,600 engineers. By 1961, a year later, the rates doubled, and by midsummer, over 200,000 had left. By mid-August, a full fifth of the East German population had fled. This situation was just not tenable. East Germany was nearing the verge of collapse. The Soviets had already tried once to claim West Berlin, and it was clear that the, West, uh, the Western allies were not going to leave. And war seemed like a poor option. Yet something had to be done. At midnight on August 12, 1961, police and units from the East German Army began to close the border by stringing up barbed wire and temporary fences. On the morning of Sunday, August 13th, East Berliners woke up to find that their city was sealed off and split in two with armed guards right down the middle of the city. August 13th, to this day, is commonly referred to as Barbed Wire Sunday. In the first weeks after the barrier went up, it was still possible to sneak across, either by jumping over the barbed wire or leaping from houses that were right along the border. But escape was dangerous, and of course, East German border guards had orders to shoot. On August 24th, only a week and a half or so after the city was sealed off, Gunter Litvin became a footnote in history as the first person to be shot while trying to cross from one side to the other. He was attempting to swim across the Spree River in a portion which forms the boundary between east and west. He tried to surrender, but that wasn't enough, and he was gunned down in the water. Eventually, the wall was expanded and fortified, and it, at its fullest extent, it stretched to 560 miles of border fencing with 1,000 watchtowers and 50,000 guards. The wall became a worldwide symbol of Soviet repression. In a lovely bit of propaganda, the Soviets referred to the wall as the anti-fascist protective rampart aimed at preventing the enemies of socialism from entering Berlin, but no one was buying that. About a year after the city was sealed off, on August 17, 1962, an 18-year-old by the name of Peter Fechter tried to escape by running across no man's land from the east side of the wall to the west, where he was shot by the East German border guards. He was left to bleed to death in full view of the west. People from the West were terrified to jump over the wall and bring him to safety for fear they might get shot, while the East German border guards just watched him bleed to death, crying out in agony. It took him about one hour for him to bleed to death. 
This was a public relations disaster. On June 26, 1963, John F. Kennedy came to Berlin and he made a very memorable speech. He was expressing his solidarity with the people of West Berlin. Some 450,000 people gathered to hear this speech and many consider it one of Kennedy's finest. It culminated with these words. He said, 2,000 years ago, the proudest boast was civis Romanus sum, I am a Roman citizen. Today, in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is, ich bin ein Berliner. All free men, wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin, and therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, and he said it again, ich bin ein Berliner. Of course, the most remembered part of that speech is his statement, Ich bin ein Berliner. However, there was a bit of a problem. Apparently, his translator didn't quite get it right. He used the indefinite article ein, and that apparently changed the meaning of the sentence from I am a citizen of Berlin to I am a jelly donut. You see, in Berlin, one of the most popular donuts you could have was called a Berliner, a Berliner Pfannkuchen. And so he is standing in front of almost half a million people, and you can hear it in the audio. When he utters the words, Ich bin ein Berliner, there's a combination of applause and of laughter. Now, linguists have scrutinized this phrase, and they've concluded that although it was awkward, it was not that far off. And uh, there are plenty of memes, though, on the Internet that have made fun of his delivery of this phrase. In any event, the speech was a great morale boost for West Berliners and a notable moment in the Cold War. So that left Berliners, uh, not the jelly donuts, that is, but the residents of East Berlin, with only two alternatives. They could resign themselves to their fate, or they could try to escape. And thousands tried in some of the most ingenious ways you can imagine. In total, more than 10,000 people tried to escape. 244 died. But some 5,000 are thought to have been successful. And some of the stories of these escapes are the stuff of legends. Four months after the wall was first erected, there was a young railroad engineer who discovered a disused train that ran from East Berlin into West Berlin. So on December 5th, 1961, he brought his family and 16 other friends to this train, put them on board, and drained the air from the train's emergency brakes. And he steamed at full throttle towards West Berlin, sending startled border guards flying. There was literally a trip to freedom. Well, he made it across, but East Germany blocked the railway line the next day. Another East German soldier, he stole a tank and smashed into the concrete barrier. The vehicle failed to break through the wall, so he got out and he tried to climb over the wall, but he got stuck on the barbed wire and he was shot twice by East German border guards. Eventually, some drunk West Germans who were hanging out at a nearby bar came to his aid and they helped them down from the barbed wire. This is one of my favorite stories. A trapeze artist who was banned from performing in East Germany because he had anti-communist beliefs. In 1962, he used his tightrope skills to flee to West Berlin by scaling an electricity pole near the Berlin Wall and dangling high above the guard patrols, he inched his way across using the disused power cable. 
His hands were numb from cold. He fell from the rope and broke both of his arms, but fortunately, he landed inside West Berlin. And here's a cool love story. Before the wall went up, there was an Austrian who had been working in East Berlin, where he fell in love with a local East Berlin girl. Authorities denied her permission to marry him back in his home country, so he decided to get her and his future mother-in-law out on his own terms. He hired a convertible, he removed the windshield, and he let some air out of the tires to bring the vehicle down to a very low profile above the ground. He got his girlfriend and the mother into the back of the vehicle, and he drove the car to Checkpoint Charlie, which is the border post. There was a bar signaling a bar that came down signaling where the border was. It's kind of like what you see at a railway crossing. However, because the car was so low and he had no windshield, he was able to punch the gas pedal and bomb right under the barrier. Gotta love it. One enterprising East German was a trained archer. He found a tall building that overlooked West Berlin, and in May of 1983, he snuck into the attic and he shot a wire cable over the wall using a bow and arrow. He had an accomplice on the other side who was able to fasten the wire to his car, and he created a zip line that cleared the wall, and in that way, this guy was able to zip line his way to freedom. Another successful escape was executed by a car mechanic who saw a show on television on hot air ballooning. He got together with a buddy of his, and between the two of them, they were able to beg, borrow, purchase, or steal some 10,000 square feet of lightweight fabric, which their wives stitched together for a balloon. It took six weeks for them to sew this balloon. The two families then boarded this makeshift homemade balloon in 1979, and in their first attempt, they failed to make it to the other side. But amazingly, they were not detected. They tried again, and this time, they were successful. They crash-landed after about a 30-minute flight into a blackberry bush on West German soil. There are some 40 or some 70 tunnels that link east to west that have been discovered. About 20 of them have been led to successful escapes. There are lots more stories like this, but you get the idea. These stories are a testament to the human spirit and the will to live as free men. Now, the wall was a scar on Berlin that represented Soviet oppression. So the East thought perhaps it would be time to build something that would serve as a symbol of the superiority of socialism that would look down over West Berlin. And trust me, when you go to Berlin, this is one landmark you simply cannot miss. It's called the Fernsehturm. It's a television tower that was built in the late 1960s. It's 368 meters tall. It is the tallest structure in Germany and the second tallest structure in the European Union by half a meter. Now the stories uh, of the tower's construction is really quite sad because it was deliberately constructed in the center of the historic medieval center of Berlin and it resulted in the destruction of a huge portion of that historic center. In fact there's a medieval church to this day that stands beside the tower as a testament to what used to be there with the destruction of the old city. But regardless of its dark origins, this is among the best-known sites in Berlin. It has around 1 million visitors every year. However, the tower has an odd effect, and to many it is seen to be mocking communists. It's got a big ball on the top of it, a big shiny silver ball. And when the sun comes out, there's a reflection on this silver ball that can be very clearly seen. It looks exactly like a cross. 
So at the highest point above the communist atheist East Germany is what looks very much like a Christian cross on every sunny day. It's been called the Pope's Revenge, and it never failed to make West Berliners smile and smirk every time they gazed west. But there's little doubt that the wall remained a blight on the city. It was a tangible symbol of Soviet oppression. Yet it seemed like it was a permanent feature of Berlin. It was really quite inconceivable to imagine that the wall might ever come down. As we get into the 1980s, estimates suggest that one way or another, about 1,000 East Germans per year were still finding their way to freedom in the West. And the maintenance cost of the wall came to about a half a billion Deutschmarks a year. But 1985 also saw the arrival of a man that would change everything when Mikhail Gorbachev came to power in the Soviet Union. He called for a restructuring of the economy and the political system. This was termed perestroika. And he called for more openness in society. This was termed glasnost. Now, the West wondered how genuine this charismatic new leader was. And the U.S. president at the time, Ronald Reagan, he met with Gorbachev and he was charmed. But Reagan was unrelenting in his pressure on the Soviet leader to remove this blight of the Berlin Wall, this symbol of communist oppression. Reagan made a trip to Berlin, and on June 12, 1987, he gave one of his most famous speeches, standing in front of Brandenburg Gate, the same place where John F. Kennedy stood in 1963, and he implored Mr. Gorbachev to tear down this wall. Then in August of 1989, the country of Hungary within the Soviet bloc announced that they would no longer keep their border with Austria sealed tight the way the communist governments had up until that point. Since East Germans were allowed to travel to Hungary, as it was part of the Soviet bloc, they now had an exit route once again to West Germany, through Hungary, into Austria, and into West Berlin. So East Germans began to flee again, as they had before the Berlin Wall went up. The East German government tried to close the hole by barring their citizens from traveling to Hungary, but there was no way to stop them. Back in East Germany, protests and demonstrations were growing. There were candlelight vigils outside churches, and soon massive weekly marches began. But the East German leader, Erich Honecker, was deaf to the protesters' demands. The words Glasnost and Perestroika were banned from East German newspapers or radio. Massive demonstrations were held with between a half a million and one million protesters agitating for the opening of the Berlin Wall. These demonstrations continued and eventually Honecker was forced out of office in October. And then came November 9th. On the evening of November 9th, a press conference was held where a spokesman for the East German government announced a liberalization of the travel regime. He did not mean to say that the borders would be opened. He merely meant to say that people would no longer have to give a reason to leave. They still had to go through the proper diplomatic channels. 
However, he was rather vague and seemingly unsure of what this directive meant or how it would be implemented. A reporter asked him when the regulations would come into force. He seemed rather confused, so he uttered immediately. Well, word got out. And uh, by this time, East Germans were excited to hear this news. They surged toward the border checkpoints. The government would try to backtrack, but by then it was too late. With all of these East Germans at the border checkpoints, the border officials were very confused. They didn't know really what to do. So to avoid the crush, the officials gradually began to let people across the border before eventually they completely lost control and they simply opened the gates. Troops stationed at the wall were put on full alert, but no one gave them the order to shoot. It probably would have been unenforceable anyway, as no one really knew what to do. And as the evening wore on, many of these East German border guards ended up joining in the revelers. That was an unforgettable night. International media broadcast all of this around the world. It was really quite surreal, as you saw East Germans and West Germans dancing on top of the Berlin Wall at midnight on November 9th. It truly did seem that the Berlin Wall was coming down. Sure enough, in the next days, it was clear that people could travel back and forth without any regulations whatsoever, and this era in Soviet history came to an end. There are all kinds of really interesting and heartwarming stories of reunifications of families and friends after all of those years. But this is one of my favorite stories. A man checked out a book from the library on the west side of Berlin in 1961. After the wall went up, he was unable to return it. In 1989, when the wall came down, he was finally able to walk back to the same library and return the book. He was not, you'll be happy to know, charged a late fee. All right, let's get off the roller coaster of events for 20th century Berlin and talk about some of the ways that you can engage with this fascinating city when you visit. Brandenburg Gate is one of the best known landmarks in Germany. Construction began in 1788 on the orders of Prussian King Frederick William II, and throughout its existence, it has seen a lot of events. It's a symbol of the tumultuous history of Europe and of Germany. When you see the gate, you're going to notice four horses and a chariot on top. This was seized by Napoleon during his occupation of Berlin in 1806 and taken to Paris, but returned after he fell from power in 1814. When the Nazis ascended to power, they used Brandenburg Gate as a party symbol. It was also the primary location where people came to protest the Berlin Wall. John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan both visited when they gave their famous speeches. And when the wall came down in 1989, the gate symbolized freedom and the desire to unify the city of Berlin. Now that is a lot to take in. Brandenburg Gate has seen it all. And I can say that when I visited, I took a few quiet moments to gaze at the structure and try and absorb its meaning and significance. You'll also want to visit the massive late 19th century Neo-Baroque Reichstag. This is the German Parliament building that has also seen a lot of history. Constructed to celebrate German unification in 1871, it was burned most likely by the Nazis in 1933, 
It was destroyed in World War in World War II, and it was immortalized with the photo of the Soviet flag being planted on its roof by Soviet soldiers. The building was renovated at the end of the 20th century, with its crowning feature being a large glass dome at the very top, giving a 360-degree fantastic view of the surrounding Berlin cityscape. It's especially impressive at night, and it's free to visit. Although there's usually a long lineup, it is the second most visited attraction in all of Germany after the Cologne Cathedral, and it has about 3 million visitors every year. And if it's a view of Berlin you want, you won't want to miss the 368-meter-tall Fernsehturm TV Tower, the tallest in Germany, and it's the second tallest tower in the European Union. They built one in Latvia in 1989 that is 368 and a half meters, a half meter taller. A bit cheeky, if you ask me. And then there's the Berlin Wall itself. Of course, it's been almost entirely taken down, but there are a few sections that you can visit. The most popular is the East Side Gallery, where it has those famous murals and graffiti. And there's one section where you can actually sign your name on the wall, which I did a few years ago. So if you visit the Berlin Wall and you see my name written on the wall, you're going to have to get back to me and let me know. If this part of Berlin's history is of particular interest to you, I'd highly recommend a visit to the Checkpoint Charlie Museum, where they chronicle many of the escapes, some of which I talked about in this podcast, both successful and unsuccessful. Now, there's not a ton of World War II history to look at in Berlin. Hitler's bunker is there, where he spent the last days, his last days, and he took his own life when in Berlin. And as interesting as it would be to see that, it has been filled in due to fears that it would develop into a gathering place for Nazi sympathizers. There is, however, a signboard on top of the location of the underground bunker, and it's got some information and uh, the description of the layout. Nearby Hitler's bunker is the Holocaust Memorial. This is a large site that is almost in the shadow of the Reichstag itself. Now, I give Germans credit for not shying away from this dark chapter in their Nazi history. They acknowledge what happened, and they want to make sure that this serves as a lesson for future generations. There is a relatively new museum opened up in 2010 called the Topography of Terror. It was built right on top of the site of the wartime headquarters of the Gestapo and the SS, and the museum chronicles many aspects of the Nazi period. It's also adjacent to a section of the Berlin Wall, so there's lots to see there. If you want to break from some of these bleaker aspects of Berlin's past, there's the 500-acre Tiergarten Park. It's got a world-class zoo as well, and it's right in the middle of the city. Great place to unwind, have a picnic, and just uh, wander around and enjoy the scenery. One of the world's great museums is in Berlin. It's called the Pergamon which is named for the ancient Greek Pergamon altar that you'll find inside, and the spectacular Ishtar Gate, which comes from ancient Persia, which originates around the year 575 BCE. It's on Museum Island, where there are a few other museums that are all worth seeing. And a stroll down the gracious Unter den Linden Boulevard and gazing on the iconic Brandenburg Gate is about the most Berlin thing you can do. And if you're into nightlife, Berlin is known for having one of the best nightclub scenes in all of Europe. For food, a couple of things you might want to try. Try the Currywurst. 
which is exactly what it sounds like. It's curry that is bathed, uh, sausage that is bathed in curry. And it's really quite tasty. And it's a very Berlin food. And in the memory of John F. Kennedy, maybe treat yourself to a Berliner Pfannkuchen, also known as a jelly donut. Now, you can see photos of many of these Berlin highlights on my Instagram account, which is Snapshots Travelog. Have a look. Feel free to leave me any comments or questions you might have, and I'll be sure to get back to you. So even though Berlin may not have a catchy nickname like City of Lights, the Eternal City, or the Big Apple, it certainly has an unmistakable feel and a vibe that is truly unique. If you have never visited this city, I really hope you get there. Well, that's all for today. And so until next time, keep calm and travel on.